Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray. Welcome to my podcast, Going Long, where every week we spend some time with folks in and out of the world of sports, but they all share one thing in common. It's a love for the world of sports. And I had to work that into the conversation with Tom Colicchio, mostly because I just wanted to have him on the show. If you don't know the name, get familiar with it. 18th season underway right now of his great show, Top Chef. He's one of America's great celebrity chefs, responsible for Gramercy Tavern in New York, the Kraft uh, line of places, Kraft Steaks, Heritage Steak, Kraft Steak in New York City and Los Angeles. And I always love talking to guys that grew up in a kitchen, learned to cook, and have done it so exceptionally well. He also shared something with us that he's never shared with anybody before, which I will share with you after you hear the entire conversation. His brother was a coach of a great high school basketball team in New Jersey. He gets into that. He gets into some of the love he had for sports when he was a younger guy. But mostly we just talked about his passion for restaurants and the restaurant industry. And of course, 18 seasons on Top Chef. What a run that has been. Here now my conversation with Tom Colicchio. Tom, I'm so glad you could be here. Obviously, there's a lot to discuss, but, you know, I I was thinking to myself before we even got started, you know, you grew up in New Jersey. You obviously had a passion for cooking. I'd love to know when that developed. But before we got started, you're talking to my producer, Andrew, who's talking about being a huge fan. And I'm thinking when you're a kid growing up to want to be a chef, did you think you'd have actual fans that were like noticing you on the street and going, you're my favorite? Absolutely not. Um, you know, like most kids, um, I grew up wanting to, you know, first, you know, I, I played, you know, basketball, baseball, football was never good enough. And, you know, so I, I kind of, you know, that dream went away, went, went, went away. Um, of course, wanted to be a rock star. I picked up a guitar when I was 10, um, realized like, you know, didn't have much of a talent for that. I stopped and started playing a bunch of times. Although now I, I continue to play and I'm actually, you know, getting better at, at my age. Um, but, uh, I started cooking at home when I was about 13 and, and, and quite frankly, I kind of hit it from like all my friends because it was like not a cool thing to do. Not cool. Um, no, not at all. And then, but my dad, when I was about 15, suggested I become a chef and really encouraged me. And I, but, but again, I think his idea of a chef would have been, you know, some guy with a white beater t-shirt on with a cigarette hanging out of my mouth, like stirring the, you know, the, the tomato sauce. And, <laughs> and, 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 and so, no, I had, I had no idea, but I have to say, you know, when I was 26, I was a chef in a restaurant in New Jersey and started getting press, you know, local press. And so at a very, you know, early, early in your career as a chef, you, you start getting used to it. And then, uh, you know, the first time I did TV, I swore I would never do TV again. Um, but uh, obviously that changed. But no, never in a million years would I ever think that someone would be a fan. Were you from the traditional Italian family, like where where the mom and dad were in the kitchen making the gravy, you know, which, of course, we know is sauce, obviously. No, we know it is gravy. No, we know it is gravy. (laughs) You know, I've never been to a restaurant and said, let me have the the, the tomato gravy. But I I know that that's the Italian heritage. Well, that was it. Like, was it always Italian food in the house? Or did they, uh, no. they branch out? No, no. My my, my parents uh, were, were, you know, both both the time, but both born here. My grandparents on my mother's side were born here. Um, my father's father came here when he was three years old. Um, uh, so no, they they cooked a lot of different things. I mean, we did have gravy Sunday gravy every Sunday, and but every every night we had to be home for dinner, um, and 
There was some, you know, Italian food, but there was also some things like meatloaf and, and you know, mashed potatoes. Sure. And so we were more of a typical American family, um, but Italian-American. Um, but we did have, you know, uh, things that were a little more Italian. I mean, even things like crabs, for instance. You know, we would go crabbing in Barnegat Bay in New Jersey, my grandfather and I. We would come home. We would cook them like you normally cook crabs, steam them, and then put them into marinara sauce. Now, that is sauce, marinara sauce, by the way, because... The definition of a gravy is a sauce made with meat drippings. So the second you jam all the meatballs and the sausage and the brujol in a, in a marinara sauce, it becomes a gravy. Anyway, I digress. But yeah, I didn't know that. But we used to put crabs and cook the crabs in the marinara and then serve it over linguine, the crab gravy, and then, and then pick the crab and eat the crab. I had no idea that was made any other way until one day I went to my friend's house, who was Irish, and, and they're like, oh, we, we, we went crab, we caught some crabs. And they put these crabs on the table. I was like, what are these? Like, you got to finish them in the gravy. That was the first time I realized that you don't always have to eat them in gravy. You know, you talked about getting uh, getting uh, noticed when you were like 26. It makes me wonder, what, did you have any kind of classical training or were you just a natural? You know, some guys pick up the guitar, which you said, you know, you didn't have that talent, but some guys pick up the guitar and they just can play and then they take lessons to refine it. But the bottom line is they didn't need it. D did you get lessons to, to learn how to cook? Uh, well, yes, but not formal training, meaning not at a culinary school, um, but working in restaurants. I mean, I put myself through apprenticeships. I, I worked, I, I promised myself I'd work one year in a restaurant and learn everything I could in that restaurant, move on to the next and then move on to the next. And so there are certain things. And, and I, I used one particular book as a guide. Um, it was a book called um, Jacques Pepin's Law Technique which was a real funny story because my, my dad brought it home from the library where he worked. I had no idea what this book was doing in the Union County Jail Library, but that's where he brought it home from. My dad was a correctional officer in the county jail. And um, so he brought this book home and the book wasn't about recipes. It was about techniques. And so when I was a kid trying to get through recipes, I really struggled. Most likely would have been diagnosed with ADHD. All of my children have been clinically diagnosed. And I really struggled reading through recipes and trying to figure it out. And when I got this book and Jacques, uh, through his writing, talked about techniques and methods, not so much recipes, it completely unlocked, you know, the secret to cooking for me. So, and it's very much like playing music. You know, you can learn three chords and you can play a lot of songs. It doesn't make you a musician, right? And so same thing with cooking. If you just learn a bunch of recipes, yeah, maybe you can, you know, you know reproduce a bunch of recipes, but it's not going to make you a great cook. And so it's really about learning that technique and you learn that on the job. You don't learn that at culinary school. You'll, you'll see it once at culinary school, but you don't right. really learn it. You don't get that muscle memory until you actually are in a restaurant working day to day doing these things. And so I spent um, probably a good, um, uh, you know, 10 years working before I took a sous chef position, before I took a chef position. All right. So I, I want to talk more, but I, I think I could do an hour. You just mentioned your dad was a correctional officer. Yeah. And have you ever seen the movie City Island? where Andy Garcia plays the correctional officer and then becomes a star in the movies for Martin Scorsese. No, I got, uh, no I'll check it out. Uh, it's actually worth checking out. But I mean, that's, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into it, but that that's not an easy job to be around that all day. I mean, and then come home. I mean, how was he around the house? He didn't talk about it. He, he never, you know, we, 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 <laughs> you know, take your child to work day never happened for us. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine it would. No, in fact, I, in fact, he's not doing career day at the local high school, is he? No, in fact, I did everything I could to, to make sure I never visited him at work, if you know what I mean. Um, and so, um, uh, 
No, you know, he was he was quiet about it. He didn't really talk much about it. Um, there was a time when he actually stopped a jailbreak. Um, he kind of I don't I don't know the circumstances, but but I know so he had some there was some local press about that. But no, he he didn't really talk about it. He was kind of quiet at home. Um, never never brought his work home. Um, and there were days where he'd work a double, um, where he's working 16 hours and he would just come home and just he was he was pretty quiet about it. Yeah, I, I, it didn't freak you out at all. No, was- no. No, the only time we were ever freaked out, and not really freaked, my mom was, we weren't, we were too young. But I remember during the riots in, in, the, in the 70s in Newark, um, he came home with a shotgun. And, you know, they had some people locked up and they were concerned that the corrections officers maybe, and that was the only time I remember, really, you know, sort of some tension around the house about his, his work. Um, and um, it was a very funny story. My, my, it was, I guess it was snowing out. And he parked his car. We lived in a four family and, and he parked his car right below. Um, you could see the car uh, in, the, in the parking lot. And I guess, you know, he came home at night and I guess from the car running, it made a pattern in the snow that was on top of the hood of the car. And my mother thought somebody wrote something in the hood of the car and f- completely freaked out. I mean, we were sleeping and all of a sudden I heard her getting upset and it was just the heat from the car. It was, but that was about it. That was the only time I ever remember him, him you know, anything at all about his work at home. Well, what you do remember is he, were, he was very passionate about supporting you in your passion and, and, and letting you pursue being a chef. And, you know, you said that you started getting attention at 26. And it makes me wonder what that means. Like well, when you start getting attention as a chef, is it because you're creating something that wasn't created before or because you're taking something and making it better? What, what's gets, what gets you noticed as a chef? It's a little of both. Um, it, it's it definitely about creating something new. Um, so this was in New Jersey. This was in, in Milburn, New Jersey at a restaurant called 40 Main Street. And um, there was a chef there before we were there. And when I got there, we just started doing things a little differently and, and got, you know, a great, actually the New York Times reviewed us um, <clears throat> and got a, a great review. And, uh, you know, just started uh, getting some press in local, in a lot of the local New Jersey magazines and things like that. And, uh, and then later on, when I, when I got to New York, it, it all changed. That's all national press once you're in New York. But yeah, it's because you're doing something different, something new. And, um, you know, I, I, I got lucky because I was, I was cooking in restaurants just when, when restaurants became really popular, where they became pop, part of pop culture. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, I have my little theory about that. It's, it's you know, when, when people, you know, kind of woke up from the, the coke haze that they were in, they stopped going to Studio 54, they realized they had to entertain somewhere else where it was a little more wholesome, and they started going to restaurants. And restaurants became very popular. I worked uh, at a restaurant called The Quilted Giraffe in New York back in, it was like 1984. I ate and there. It was a great restaurant. And um, this was when it was on 2nd Avenue before they moved into uh, the, the AT&T building. And um, it, uh, you know, it was a party every night. I mean, you, you had, you know, all these celebs walking in. It was, it was, it was just complete. A kid from New Jersey. It was just like, to me, it was, it was like, this is all cool and different and new. And um but uh, yeah, playing playing in New York, and I think the proximity of, of New Jersey, growing up in the shadow of New York, and and knowing one day that's where I want to be, um, I, I was kind of hesitant um, to to make you know the cross the cross the river. Um, but once I got there, it was just you know things were things just worked out really really well. So it was kind of you know a little talent, a little, little timing, and uh, you know just a little luck. Yeah. You, you know, it's so interesting that you talk about that time. You and I are very close to the same age. I think you're 58, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I just turned 58 a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. So 
But I, I remember the Quilted Giraffe. I, I may be getting some of the names wrong, but there was a, a place in New York, an American place, I think. Like yeah, Larry, Larry, yeah, Larry Forgione is one of the, is one of the first um, unabashedly American restaurants uh, right. run by Larry and, Forgione. And th those were like, for me, I'm in my 20s, and those were my mom's birthday or an anniversary. Right. Those were the places that you si singled out as places to spend, like those family moments that became special events in your life. And and for me, and maybe it was just because of my age, and maybe they existed before, but I had that same instinct that you did, that it used to be, you knew the great Italian place, sure. or you knew this, but there were no chefs, that, like Boulet, you didn't go to, you didn't go to see a chef, you went to a restaurant, and then it became a totally different culture, part of the American culture. Yeah. Yeah, I, again, I, and my, my theory on that is that when cooking, cooking became really popular, um, you know, again, 80s mid 80s uh you know into the 90s and and you know first you had the magazines like cuisine which is closed now and you had gourmet magazine all the magazines and so i think people would start as, as a hobbyist right and as a hobbyist so if you're a, a a hobbyist cook at home and you're throwing dinner parties and maybe you're taking a class at you know with james beard when he was teaching back in his townhouse and um our peter comps which became the uh um you know, the, the full-fledged culinary school now. Um, and then maybe you started getting, you know, nicer stoves, like you know, we have restaurant type stoves for your home and you redid your kitchen and, you know, you've got a bunch of cookbooks and, you know, the best pots and pans. And eventually you started collecting chefs. You really wanted to know who the chefs were because we were now in the magazine, all those magazines that you were reading, we started filling those pages of the magazines and people wanted to know who we were. They wanted to know our personalities and they wanted to know what's made us tick. And that's when you started seeing the, the chef-owned restaurants sort of come into their own. Mm -hmm. don't, don't, don't you think, though, that cooking, because I, I do like to cook. I'm a novice cook. I'm willing to experiment. You know, I'm, I'm willing to look at a recipe and then, you know, add some mm -hmm. things that I like to do. But kind of like playing music, you can learn to play music, but you may never be a musician. Right. You can learn to follow a recipe, but that doesn't make you a cook. Like when they say this is going to take 35 minutes, sometimes I'm thinking, that's because they're seeing it through air eyes. I mean, I mean, cooking is like any other art, an actual art that has instincts involved with it, doesn't sure. it? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I think one of the, the biggest mistakes, and I, when I I've been doing these, um, you know, zooms for for corporate clients and stuff, and cooking classes, you know, over the last year, and it's one thing I'm, I try to teach people is get away from times. Times mean nothing. If it says it's going to take you, you know, something a half an hour. You have no idea what temperature your oven is. So if it's a meat, let's just say you're roasting a six pound prime rib, right? The idea that you're going to put it in the 350 degree oven and it's going to take three hours. I mean, think about that, right? Your oven may not be a 350, even though the dial says 350, okay? The meat, the temperature of the meat going into the oven is going to make a huge difference. If you take it right out of the refrigerator and put it in the oven, it's going to make a huge difference than if you took that meat out and it's been sitting on your counter for you know, an hour tempering. And so you have to use temperature. You have to use a thermometer and really get a good read on it. And then, I mean, I, I can cook by feel, um, but uh, you know, teaching that is something that's really, really hard to do. I mean, there's all these methods where you, 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 know, you tell someone to poke your, you know, this fleshy part of your hand here. It's, it's not scientific at all, but through repetition, through time that you spend cooking, you get a feel for it. So absolutely, there's a feel for cooking. It's not you know, recipes are fine. They're guidelines. But the only way you're going to be a better chef and a better cook is to cook. Only way you can do it. Okay. So, so tell me what kind of chef you are, because there are some restaurants where you go in and the wait staff says there are no adjustments to the menu. The chef doesn't like it. 
And I'm thinking, and I understand that's his piece of art, but there are things that I see that look great. And I go, well, that's it. There's one ingredient. And by the way, you and I can have an argument about this because cilantro, that did not come into existence, I think, until the late 80s or the 90s. It's the bane of my existence. I cannot, if cilantro is in it and you've cooked it, I will not eat it. It just ruins. And I know, I'm sure you've read about the cilantro gene. Some people can tolerate it. Some people can't. Why has it become so damn popular? Um, because I think the prevalence of various cuisines that, that, that call for it, whether it's Thai, you know, all Southeast Asian, whether it's Indian, whether it's Mexican, um, we're starting to, to, again, bring more of that, those flavors in. And then American chefs start experimenting with those, those different herbs. And so I, I use it a lot. Um, but I, I know people like my mother can't tolerate it at all. See? Um, I have one of my sons cannot tolerate it at all. Mother, forget it. If your mother doesn't like it, you should have it in nothing. That's no, I don't put I don't put in any I don't put in anything that I said I give to her. No, it shouldn't um, be in anything in a restaurant. If your mom doesn't like it, it should not be in anything <laughs> that you make on any recipe ever. I'm putting my foot down right now because I'll, I'll keep I think it would apply to me. But getting back to your first question, listen, my feeling is that chefs should be accommodating. Um you know, you know, say within reason. Uh, if, right. if if you want me to remove something, if I'm making a dish and it's cilantro, and you say, "Can you make it without cilantro?" Absolutely. Why not? Um, now, if there's cilantro in the dish that I, I it's part of parts of it are cooked and I can't do it, then I can't do it. But maybe I'll have to omit that entire piece of the dish. Right. Um, my, my, you know what I always try to get my wait staff is to find out because a lot of times it's it's like let's make a deal. Someone sees a dish and they're like, you know what? I don't really like mushrooms, but the potatoes on that dish sound really good. And then they start with, well, can I just let me, let me know what you want. Because if you just want those potatoes, I'd be happy to give you a side of those potatoes. So I, I, I think just let, you know, letting us know what you want. But I, listen, I think chefs should be flexible. Um, you know, this idea that this is the way you eat because I tell you that that doesn't go really far these days. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, you're not, you're, quite frankly, I don't agree that, that what we do is an art form. Um, really? No, not at all. No, no. I, I think it's a. Uh, um, there's always, you know, again, the. I, I call my restaurant craft for a reason. I, I think it's more craft what we do, less so art. Now it can be artistic the way a furniture making maker that is doing uh, shaker furniture is a craftsman. Now that person, if they started doing like Biedermeier, well, maybe now they're more of an art, an art, an artisan. Um, but it's just really like, how far do you want to take it? But I still think it's more craft than art. All right. So, so we agree on one thing, though. You're never going to cook again with cilantro, correct? That's out of all the restaurants. I want to get that on the record right now. No, no, no I can't. I can't. I can't agree to that. I love it too much. I love cilantro. Right. Before we're done, I'm going to get you to commit to that. Trust me. I have a way. I have a way with people. I, I'm, tell, I'm telling you, the combination of, 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 of like cilantro and chilies and a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of sour like tamarind. And there's nothing like it. It's, it's like. It's a great combo. When you own multiple restaurants, which you do, you know, I, I've always wondered what role you play in the restaurant. Do you create every dish? Do you, do you are you in there regularly for quality control? I mean, you, you can't be in 10 places at once. So your name's on it. Obviously, it's associated with your reputation. How do, how do you manage the expectation of, oh, this is Tom's restaurant. I'm expecting a certain level of quality, but you're not there cooking the actual meals. No, no. But, but again, even if you're there, the chef's not cooking. The meal. I, I spend time in my kitchens. Um, but here's the, here's the thing. You know, a chef, it's their job to, to, number one, create the culture in the kitchen. Okay. 
um, source the ingredients or at least have the chefs source a certain type of ingredient, okay? You're putting together the dishes. These are your techniques, your methods, your style of setting up the kitchen. And then all kitchens are set exactly the same. And so your style of producing the food, it's, it's all part of, of what a chef does. Now, the, the night of dinner service starts, I'm expediting, right? So I'm taking the tickets, I'm calling out the tickets, I'm coordinating the hot food with the cold food, fish with meat. All, and that's, what, that's what the chef is doing. So I equate that to, if you were going to see a piece of classical music, you were going to you know, uh, listen to the New York Philharmonic play, right? Well, there's the, there's the, 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 the writer the, the, who wrote the piece, right? Was probably long gone, right? Who gets top billing? The conductor, right? right? Now, when you go to see that conductor or listen to that piece, you don't expect that conductor to jump in the pit and pick up a, you know, a cello and start playing. No way. Even though he probably can play, but no, or he or her, but you, you are there, you know, so chefs are, are providing, that's the role that we play. We're coordinating everything. We're, we're putting the band together. Do you check every plate before it leaves the kitchen? You see, see every plate. You see, you yeah. see, because there's a pass. And so the yeah. food comes up and you're seeing everything. So, but that's what the chef is doing. Now, a lot of the prep has been done in advance, all the butchering, all the sauce making, a lot of the vegetables that are cooked. This is all being done in advance. And so that's during the day, you're tasting all, all day long, make sure everything is okay. It's not like, you know, the order comes in, you start from scratch. You may cook the protein to order, but a lot of the other stuff is done. Um, you know, again, the better chefs figure out what they could do in advance that is going to create the, the least um, sort of deficit to, the, to the, the final outcome of that dish, right? And a good chef intuitively knows what to do and how to, how to you know, create that kitchen that can do that. And there are times where I've had better kitchens. I mean, back when I was at Gramercy Tavern, there was a moment in time there where I had, I had the kitchen staff that I could do anything. You know, we actually had the regular menu. We had two tasting menus. One was a, a, a regular tasting menu, then a special tasting menu. And then I had a 12 course menu that was never written. If somebody ordered it, I just started telling people what to do. And I had the team that could do it. I couldn't do it in the kitchen I have now. I don't have that level of talent. Just an amazing group of, of, of cooks who could pretty much do that. And so, you know, you also, you have to, you have to, you know, work with what you have. But that's the real artistry. See, everybody thinks the, the recipes are the artistry, right? Well, yeah. if that's it. If you're a really good cook, I mean, you can pick up the French Laundry cookbook and you can probably do a few of those dishes. Good luck putting that into a restaurant and producing that every night under pressure for, you know, 150, 200 people, 300 people a night. That's that's the real artistry. Yeah. Did, did you ever see the movie Chef, by the way, as I digress? I, I have. Yeah. Yeah. Does that accurately portray? Like, first of all, he liked to cook at home. Do you like to cook at home? Number one, but does that accurately portray like what what goes on in the kitchen? Yeah, they did. They did a pretty good job there. Um, in fact, I actually um, helped a little bit with the film. Um, oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. Um, God, why am I forgetting the actor and the, and the director? John, John Favreau. John, yeah, John. John. Yeah, John. John. Oh, I know John. John called me up, and there was something he wanted to know about uh, this iconic dish that, and we kind of worked some stuff out. Great guy. Um, uh, I ran into him right before, right before COVID out in Los Angeles at a, at a, uh, someone's house for dinner. It was, it was kind of cool because he, he was like, wanted to get in the kitchen and, and, and mix it up, but yeah, he's a, he's a really good, good cook. Um, yeah, it looks like yeah. he knows how to use the tools. I mean, there, there's yeah. an, there's an art to chopping. I know that I've yeah. taken classes on that. Some guys look like they know what they're doing. The rest of us look like hacks. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's like, it's again, I always equate this to music. 
the second someone picks up a knife, I can tell if they're professional or not. So that's like right. if someone picks up a guitar, the first couple notes, you know if they're a pro or not. Right. You, you gotta, you gotta, I'm, I'm doing this, even though people can't see what we're doing, you gotta like roll the knife, right? I mean, it's not, well, it doesn't come off. It doesn't come off the block. Well, you can, it, it can, when you first learn, you want to keep the tip down. More importantly though, what you want to do is that knife has to be up against your fingers. Right. And your fingers have to be closed. So you don't chop your fingers, fingers off. Fingers have to be curled under. And right. when you, when you move the knife, when you're cutting, you're not really moving your, if you're right-handed, you're not moving the right hand. You're actually using the left hand as a guide to guide your, your knife across whatever you're cutting. Um, that's what most people don't do. They don't, they don't get that knife right up against their knuckles. It's right. dangerous. So, to do. so how did Top Chef come about? I mean, here you are, you're starting to get attention. You're in your thirties. Cause this show's been on the air for 18 years. This is season 18, right? Season 18. I think it's 15 years. F 15 years you've been doing this. So you're in your First of all, ahead of time for all this. I mean, the restaurant business is, is, is morning, noon, and night. Now you're doing a TV show. How do you have time for all this? You know, it doesn't take that much time. It takes about six weeks to shoot the whole thing start to finish, so it's not that bad. Right. Um, and you were out in Portland this year during COVID, right? Yeah, we were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. How did you manage that whole situation? We stayed safe. We were in a bubble, like the NBA. We were, we were just, you know, secluded in a bubble, and it worked out. Nobody got sick. Um, we have about 150 people on our crew, and everyone stayed safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so how, did, how did it come to it? How did, yeah. you, how did you get on Top Chef? Yeah, so, so out of the blue, I got a phone call one day from this producer. And she said, we're doing this, uh, you know, uh, reality competition show. And we think you'd be a great judge. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and, and, and they called me back again. And they said, listen, we really think you'd be great for this. You know, why don't you consider doing this? And I was like, nah, I really don't want to do. There was another chef who had a reality show. It wasn't competition based. And. Um, I promised him I would never mention the name of the the name of the the show, um, so I won't. But uh, you, you, I, you I, promised it because you don't like the guy, or no? Because... I like the no because I like the guy, and he's like, "Tom, oh. I'm trying to forget that show. Don't ever mention it." Oh. So anyway, it didn't. <laughs> now work you got out me really so well curious. What, what's that? You got me so curious now. Uh, so anyway, I, I I promised. So I, it didn't work out well for him. So I didn't want to do it. And then they came back to me and said, "Listen, we produced Project uh, Runway and Project Greenlight, and I was a fan of Greenlight especially." Um, but runway, you know, okay. And they said, listen, we think you'd be great. Can we please just get a producer there just to get you on camera? I said, fine. So this young woman shows up with a little camcorder, starts asking me some questions. Two days later, they said, can you come to LA for a proper screen test? We think you're going to be great. I said, no, I'm not getting on a plane to come to LA for a screen test. However, I just did a, a small documentary with ABC News on the opening of Kraft. Um, so how about if I just send you that? And so I did, and they called up a couple of days later and said, we want to make you an offer. And I was like, all right, fine. Um, you know, I, I joke around in that um, I made a decision because I was tired of going to food festivals where I would sit next to, you know, uh, Bobby Flay or, or, you know, someone like that who was on TV and yeah. I would sign 20 books and they would sign 300. <laughs> and, and I didn't think it was because they had a better book. And so I was like, you know what, let me give this TV thing a shot. And and, and keep in mind, I, I, the first time that I was on TV, I promised I would never in a million years go on TV again. I was on the Regis and Kathy Lee show. That's how long ago it was. It was wow. 1991 to be exact. And on Friday, they called up. On Friday, I go and I had my dish. And I, did a, a, I walked through what I was going to do. They said, great. The producer leaves. I'm leaving the building. And I asked someone, I said, when should I come on Monday? Yeah, I get here at 8 o'clock. I show up at eight o'clock. 
The producer is screaming at me from the second I, I walk in. Where were you? You missed rehearsal. You were supposed to be here at six o'clock in the morning. And I was like, and the guys are laughing their asses off because they know they know exactly what they did. Yeah. So I'm setting up. And back then they had no culinary team to help you. I'm on my own setting up on this table and this portable burner off, off camera. And I'm, every five minutes she comes over and just looks at me. She goes, you're going to screw this up. I should pull this right now. So I do it. Bree just comes over. We start the segment and I put something in the oven and I knew the oven was off. I had another one down. It was a roasted eggplant. I did this, this braised snapper dish with roasted eggplant and this lemon rosemary vinaigrette. And I had all the steps done. I pulled, I had the other eggplant already cooked. So he's over there fumbling with the, with the stove. And I'm like, come over here. It's okay. And he's like, no, but the stove has got to turn it off. And I said, no, come over here. And he walks over. He goes, that's what happens when you miss rehearsal. And I was like, I can't believe this guy just threw me under the bus. So I get, I get through and just nailed it. I did it all in time and I'm done. As it turns out, Regis missed the rehearsal. He wasn't there for rehearsal. He thought he had no idea. I wasn't there. He goes all out of hitch. And the producer said, wow, that was amazing. That was great. You can come back anytime. I looked at her. I said, I will never do TV again. And I left. <laughs> And that, so that was 91 and Top Chef comes about in what, 2006 well, or somewhere in that about? I had been doing Today Show and things like that. Right. I've done other, I had done other TV, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, the, and those stoves actually work on the Today Show? I've always thought they were just props. Did they no, actually the, turn the, on to get heat? No, going, going back a few years ago, when I first started doing Today Show, it was more a table and they have a little burner. Now they have a full-on kitchen. That, that all works. No, it's a, it's a full wow. kitchen, yeah. yeah. So, so somehow they convinced you, did, I mean, you... you what 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 did they pitch you as the idea for the show, and and what did you think the the longevity of the show would be? I mean, that's another thing. You know, you talk about the '80s, how you know we got to this culture where restaurants are part of the American landscape, right? And I'm thinking somehow we transitioned to the point. And I remember when the Food Network came on there, and I said, "Really? They're going to have a 24-hour channel about food and cooking right. and stuff like that?" And now right. we have 97 channels about right. cooking. Food. Right. So, well, what do you think when they first pitched you? Well, again, what they did is, is they, they sent me a bunch of tapes on Project Runway and I watched Project Runway and they said, it's going to be similar to this. I was like, okay, I, I can picture it. I can, I, I can see what it's like. And, and you know, a couple of things I asked them, I said, here's two things. Um, I, want to, I want the judges to make the decisions, not the producers. And they agreed to that. And um, I, I, I wanted it to be real. And I wanted to have input on the show. I didn't want to turn this into some silly you know, show that wasn't taken seriously. In fact, the first season was kind of so-so. I mean, it, it was, it was, you know, people loved it, but there was way too much drama. Um, there were home cooks on who really weren't that good. And it, it just wasn't great. It wasn't really until like third season that we started really kind of hitting our stride. And, and um, but they took a lot of input. And the great thing about it was, you know, the show has changed so much during the course of the last, you know, 15 years, because every time we have an idea, uh, the producers are open to it. Uh, I mean, I'm an executive producer on the show now. I wasn't when we first started, but you know, they would they would listen to our feedback, and um, it's it's uh, it's been it's it's been a great run. I thought it would last two seasons. I had no idea it would last this long. It's crazy. But but, but you're in the position now where you're judging other people's work, which yeah, sure. I would imagine comes with. I don't want to say because I don't I don't I don't know what it's like to walk in your shoes, but. You know, I don't know if I'd want somebody judging my work if I thought that it was good. And yet here you are having to say what's good, what's not good. And I've always thought, you know, whether it's food or art, 
it's a very personal thing. And, and what makes somebody a culinary expert that they can actually write a review for a newspaper that's going to tell me whether I should like it or not? I've always thought that was an odd thing. How, how do you feel about that? Well, listen, reviewing is, uh, it's, it's been around for a long time and people, people judge your work all the time. They do. They either listen to your show or not. They do. I agree. And that, that's, that's so, so, and also chefs are getting judged all the time, not only by the reviewers that are coming in, obviously that's a big deal in reviewers in, um, but people come in every single day. And even, even before user generated reviews, people either, they voted with their dollars. They were either coming in, they were word of mouth. They were telling their friends at the restaurant's great. So we're being judged all the time. We're used to it. I don't look, I don't, even though I'm, called judge on the show. I don't look at my, my role as judging their food. I look at my, jo- my, my job as mentoring them. I look at my job as, as, as giving them honest feedback about what they're doing. It's never personal. It's never about my preference. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll never tell them, well, I would have done X, Y, and Z. You'll never hear that in my mouth because I'm not there to, to tell them what I would do. I'm there to, to give them feedback on what they're doing. Right. It's not my it's not my my restaurant where where I'm, I'm going to tell that cook what I want them to do. This is me giving them my honest opinion about what I think they did, the mistakes that they made and how they can improve. That's really it. And this, this stuff is very basic, you know, unlike a reviewer that is res, uh, responding to. You know, whatever mood they were in that night, the guests that they were with. Um, the uh, you know the, the mood of the, of the dining room that night, whether the server was in a bad you know had a bad night. You know, there's a lot of other things that reviewer is keying into. I'm looking at food. That's it. And so it's really easy. Is it cooked properly? Is it seasoned properly? Those are the first two two boxes you need to check. After that is, did they adhere to the um, the challenge? And it's also a you know big part of it. And and then after that, then we can kind of look at other things. But you know, if you you can you can knock out a, a lot of the food right at whether it's and when, and when you say cook properly, there's varying degrees of cook properly. Is something brown properly? Also, I look at intention. I always ask the chef, "What were you trying to do?" Because I want to know if they actually did what they were trying to do. You know, and that also plays into the competition here because working with a clock going off, um, it's it's really stressful. Puts you under a lot of pressure. Also, the fact that the stations where they're cutting and prepping is pretty far away from the stove. And so keeping your eye on that, on that food and, and time. <laughs> why, why she wants to see. We're, we're, do, we're doing this on zoom. I am enjoying your dog really trying to get out in, into the backyard. Yeah, He's like yeah. at the door. You want to yeah. let him out? That's my pup. No, she just <laughs> wants to, she always wants to go out. She'll, she'll chill out. She wants attention. She's getting bored. Um, uh, but um, so Intention is really important. Uh, you know, trying to understand what the chef is is trying to do. Again, uh, they'll get. That's where they get tripped up a lot as well. Um, but again, because of the clock and because of the proximity of the stove and everything, mistakes happen. Plus, also when you're by yourself cooking a block party for two hundred people, yeah, it's not about who who made the best. It's survival at that point. You know, <laughs> and obviously the food is good, but it's also the person who could think I'm by myself. I don't have, you know, four sous chefs and a staff people pull this off. What can I do that I can accomplish in the three hours time that you're giving me to cook something for 200 people to be really, really good? That all plays into it. And yeah. so, you know, a chef who could think on their feet, uh, a chef who, who has a lot of stamina, um, they'll do better than some others. And so it's not just about who makes the best dish. 
Yeah. On the subject of the reviews, would you read your reviews when, and, and by the way, do you know when a reviewer is coming in or is it supposed to be done, you know, without your knowledge so they can actually get the true sense of the, of the restaurant? So in, in a restaurant, they don't tell you. Right. Um, but I can tell you that, that if there's a reviewer, every single restaurant, um, you know, not every single, but most restaurants, especially restaurants that are getting reviewed, they know what those reviewers look like. And, and there, there are restaurants that pay waiters bonuses for spotting the reviewer. Really? Um, there's also um, phone numbers that we look at that we know, you know, it used to be the New York Times, this is before cell phones, they used to, they, you know, you knew the, the prefix. And so, you, you know, you kind of knew this is a New York Times number and this could be a, re this could be a reviewer. So we would look at phone numbers um, so there's a lot of a lot of uh, intel that we would use to uh, determine whether or not a reviewer was coming in. But you know what? That only takes you so far. You still have to cook the food. Yeah. Have you gotten a bad review? Yeah, sure. Not a lot. And how do you, how do you react to that? Are you sensitive? Um, yeah, sure. Um, you know, we got a review for uh, my newest restaurant with Temple Court that I thought was really unfair. And I let the, I let the reviewer know. And the reason I thought it was unfair is Temple Court, it was uh, um, Fowler and Wells when we first opened up, we changed the name, but um, it was a crazy busy, the bar room was so busy, um, we, would, we would have to let, you know, probably three to 400 people and they couldn't come in. And so the reviewer showed up and we knew as soon as he walked in and he sat in the bar and had a drink and the place was mobbed. He comes in the Monday, I think Christmas was on a Sunday. Okay, so he came in Monday night at 10 o'clock. There was nobody in the restaurant. Then he came in the following week on Monday, the Monday after New Year's Eve. Oh. No one in the restaurant. And yeah. then he complained that the restaurant just didn't have the kind of buzz that the barroom had when he was in the barroom the night, you know, at one other visit. Of course it didn't. <laughs> and so when I asked him, I said, why did you do that? Like, and then you wrote, you wrote about this. And he just said, well, I couldn't get in any other time. It was like, well, come on. <laughs> and so it was, it was a little, I thought it was unfair. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it wasn't a bad review. Um, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible. Um, when I opened up Colicchio and Sons, um, I forget the publication. I actually lost the ticket in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> really? This stuff still happens. We lost the ticket in the kitchen. It was kind of crazy. Something happened. We, lo we lost the ticket. And so they waited 45 minutes. I mean, at a certain point, the waiter was like, it's been a half an hour. And they came and checked. They were like, where's the ticket? <laughs> Their ticket. Oh, no. So, you know, listen, you make mistakes. But on balance, I mean, over the course of my career, I've had four three-star reviews, New York Times now, three, four three-star reviews in four different restaurants by four different reviewers. Right. Going and you've won, Brian Miller. You've won the James Beard Award, correct? Uh, you won that? Uh, you, you've you've got Michelin stars, correct? No. Way, uh, when I was at Grammar, when I was at Grammar, when I was what, at Grammar, what, what, what's a fat guy with tires doing handing out awards anyway? I, I never, know. It, you I know never got that one. Here's the thing: I got I got a I got a Michelin uh, the first year they were here at Kraft, and then I made a comment about not dreaming about Michelin stars, and they promptly took it away, and I never got it back. Really? You can yeah. take away a Michelin star? Well, they take them away. Yeah, they 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 kind of review, but it's you know it's a mystery to me how. I mean, I, I made the comment where, and I didn't think it was a bad comment. I just said, I grew up as an American chef dreaming of, of the New York Times. 
And I said, if, if Michelin's here for the next 10 years, then I think American chefs will dream of Michelin stars. And they didn't like that comment. So, so it's obviously a little politics involved and nobody cares. The food's good. The food's good. But, you know, I said to you before you came on, Tom, that, you know, one of the purposes of this podcast is to engage folks that join me, not only in their life endeavors, but in the world of sports. Sure. And uh, you and I were talking before you came on the air. And, and it makes me wonder, uh, can you eat crap? Can you go to a stadium, watch a baseball game? And have like a boiled hot dog and enjoy it, or does it have to be fine food to you for you to be satisfied? No, and I think there's something in between fine dining and crap. Um, <laughs> no, um, I think eat, there's something in between, like give Applebee's. Good, give, me, give me a good plate of nachos, and I'm happy with or without cilantro. Yeah, but not not with that like cheese that comes out of the the whatever they're no, making. No, with real cheese, you can make real nachos. Um, yeah. No, I I like. Um, I don't eat a whole lot of hot dogs. I don't know. Uh, I just don't. Um, but I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll eat stadium food. Sure. Um, you know, I, if I'm, if I'm hungry, it's not, it wouldn't be my first choice. I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, eat seven days a week like that, but sure. If I'm at, if I'm at a stadium, I'll have a, a, a stadium, you know, meal. But I will say, you know, you talked about this transition in the restaurant business. I've taken my boys who are big baseball fans on, on a stadium tour. Um, they're now in their twenties and they've given up on their dad. But when, when they actually liked me, we would travel over the summer and we would go to baseball stadiums. And even that, you know, baseball stadiums used to be a hot dog, uh, some Cracker Jacks, some popcorn. Now you're out in Seattle. They have fried grasshoppers and sushi. Los Angeles has all kinds of things. You know, Promonte brothers in Pittsburgh. Sure, sure. It's like real food in stadiums now. Because people want better food. And they realize that there's more money in, in better food as well. I mean, last time I went to a Yankee game, I was at, uh, um, what's the buffet they have there on the lower level? Um, champion, that's champions. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the, of the, of the setup, but they have like, they bring in guest chefs. Oh that, yeah. That do dishes. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was great. It was, it was, it was really good. There's, listen, yeah, yeah. there's people want, there's good, you know, people want good food everywhere. You go to a stadium, you, you go to MSG right now, there's a bunch of brands there um, that, that, you know, people want better food everywhere you go. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I said, you know, it's become a competitive business. And as you said, our palates have changed to some extent. And sure. we expect better than that boiled hot dog, which is still served in some places. But, yeah. you know, and, and you said you're not a huge sports fan. But, you know, when you were a kid, you said, look, you kind of hid liking to cook from your friends because it wasn't cool. Right. I mean, were you a sports fan to be to hang out with the cool kids that were talking about the Knicks and oh, the, yeah. the I was, Rangers I was a, and all that stuff? I was a huge sports fan growing up. I I played uh, basketball, football, baseball. I wasn't very good at baseball. I was pretty good football. We didn't play organized football. We played full on tackle football, no pads um, in the grass. Uh, grew up doing that basketball. Um, I, I played organized basketball um, uh, until I was a freshman. I was never I was I wasn't tall. Enough. I was a swimmer. I was a competitive swimmer from the age of eight to 17. I coached for a few years. Um, and so I, I just, I stopped watching a lot of professional sports. I still watch some college basketball. My, my brother is a very successful high school basketball coach in New Jersey. And so I do watch some high school basketball. Um, he's at Elizabeth High School. It's where we grew up and where, um, uh, where he, he graduated from. And, and he spent, I think, 16 years at Linden High before moving over to Elizabeth. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of I, I don't I don't I don't watch a lot of sports at home. Um, you know, I'll be honest. So I used to be a, a major football fan um, and I used to gamble, too. Jets I or stopped, Giants? I stopped gambling. Jets just, or Giants? 
Uh, I was a Redskins fan. You were a Redskins fan. Back when I was watching, I was watching, you know, Joe Theismann, Billy Kilmer, Sonny Jurgensen back, back, back then. Yeah, sure. I'm that old. Yeah. Um, but I was a Redskins fan. Um, uh, and um, I, I stopped gambling and I stopped watching football. I stopped watching. Is that why you watched football? Because you gambled? Or? I, was ga- I was gambling and then it just became a habit and I stopped and I went cold turkey. And in fact, um, I just decided it was too disruptive to my life. I mean, I, I was, you know, spending, you know, uh, all week thinking about it. And then Saturday and say playing college ball, you know, Sunday and then chasing into Monday, losing money you didn't have. And this is back when I was a cook, I, I, you know, and, and I just realized like, it's just, it's just not, not how I want to spend my time. And with that, I stopped watching football. Um, you kind of had a gambling problem for a period of time then, right? I, yeah, a little, I mean, again, I wasn't a ton of money because I didn't have a ton of money, but right. I was, I was gambling more money than I had. Yeah. And, and, and do you remember, because uh, I know this about gamblers, you know, oftentimes winning does not come with anywhere near the satisfaction of the pain of losing, especially in a way, you know, you're up three with, uh, or up two with a second to go and a guy hits a three pointer or a football game that has one of those meaningless scores at the end and you lose and you don't sleep at night. No, I know. I know. Exactly. That was you? Yeah, that was, that was it. Yeah. And so I, uh, I, I stopped, um, you know, I still follow uh, boxing. I, I actually started boxing for a bunch of years um, uh, for, for training and then started sparring. Um, that was always a lot of fun. Um, so I, I do watch a, a little boxing, uh, but, but, you know, I don't, I just don't watch a lot of professional sports. I did watch the, you know, the, the college uh, NCAAs. I watched that. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Carolina fan. My team didn't, didn't, didn't make it, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and now you need a new head coach, right? But, yeah. Yeah. Now we need a new head coach. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good history, though, when you've only had a couple of coaches in your lifetime. Yeah, I think three since. I mean, I, I knew Dean Smith a little bit. Um, oh, you did? Yeah, I, I, I um, became friendly um, with a guy named Tommy Kearns, who played for the 1952 championship uh, team at UNC. In fact, he jumped center against Will Chamberlain. And so I got to know Tommy a little bit, and he introduced me to, to, to Coach Smith. And uh, Dean used to love food. I mean, just love coming to New York restaurants. And so he would always come to my restaurants. And he would always hook me up with tickets. It's a great story. So he'd always give me like great tickets, like third, third row behind the bench. And so they were in town playing Notre Dame in the garden. And I was up in the mezzanine. And I, I didn't care. It was like good seats. So I get a letter from Coach Smith saying, um, you know, Tom, uh, I'm so sorry about the seats that you got the other day. But I was like, how does this guy know where I was sitting? And, you know, anyway, it was this really great letter. So that's the year that they beat Michigan. Right. That was the Fab Five. Chris Webber. 92 or 93? It was either 92 or 94? 94. Yeah. 94. I think it was 94. Yeah. Yeah. Where Chris Webber threw the ball out of bounds. Carolina wins. So I sent, I sent, I'm not a letter writer. I sent him a letter as the, you know, coach, congratulations on a great season. Uh, You know, winning the championship more than makes up for those lousy seats you gave me in the garden. (laughs) (laughs) He sent a letter back. Uh, I kept those letters there. It's, it's, but he, he was, he just loved food, man. And just, you know, um, it was interesting when he was in my restaurants, I mean, more, more than actors, politicians, men would get up and come over to shake his hand. More really? than any, I mean, I, you know, I, you know, famous people in my restaurants and people, people reacted to him a certain way. Um, and uh, he was, he was a great guy. Yeah. Really great guy. You know, I know you're also passionate about, you know, helping out restaurants through this pandemic that everybody's lived through. And I, I want to talk about that for a few minutes before I let you go, but, I'm sure you serve celebrities all the time, not you personally, but in your restaurants. 
I'm sure you serve athletes in your restaurants. Without mentioning names, I mean, are, are there guys come in that A, want to meet you, but B, more importantly, with, with this entitled idea that because of their who they are, they deserve special treatment? Oh, no. No? There are people, there, no, there are people that want to meet me. They want to say hi. They love, you know, fans that want to they love the show and stuff like that. But, you know, I don't. I think I think people are, you know, for the most part, they, they come in, they want to enjoy the meal. If they want to say hi, that's fine. But it's I, no, not. Yeah, I don't get a lot of that. Are you good coming out from the kitchen now? Because you're a recognizable face. I mean, if you know, people watch the show. It's no longer. Oh, wait a second. You know, they, they know your face as opposed to necessarily your name. Are you comfortable coming out and mingling with everybody and having people pay that attention to you saying, oh, you're from Top Chef? Yeah, I'm not. You're not. I'm, I'm not. Yeah. I, I, I come out less frequently than I used to um, uh, because of that, because then it's also pictures, you know, prior to people having a phone, it was, you know, they would say hi and that was it. Now right. everybody wants to take a picture and it's, it's really, you know, it, it's, it's really cool. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy that happens and I'm happy that people are there, but I'm just not comfortable. Um, I have a hard time taking a compliment. <laughs> it's, uh, um <laughs> I don't know, it, but listen, it's, 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 it comes to the territory and, and uh, um, you know, I'll, I'll never say no, but I try, you know, I don't make myself uh, I, as a valve. By the way, I had a restaurant idea that I want to throw your way. I'm sure you get this all the time too, or, oh, you should make this dish, but I have an idea before you go. But I know you're passionate about this because look, when the pandemic came, we wondered how many restaurants would even survive. And maybe with what we've been through, you feel better about the way, look, there's been a lot of people that lost their jobs, but it seems like a lot of restaurants have learned a way to navigate through, especially with delivery and pickup, et cetera, and maybe there'll be a higher rate of survival than we expected. I don't know what your feeling is about that, but uh, what have you done and, and what can be done for the people that have put their life's work into this and, and now find themselves in this situation? Well, what, I, what I've done and what I continue to do, I was a, a co-founder of an organization called the Independent Restaurant Coalition. And we uh, successfully lobbied the government to include $28.6 billion in the stimulus package directed to restaurants and to independent restaurants. But does it get there? Does it, does it get there? Oh, yeah, sure. It does, sure. okay. Yeah, so this, this, this money is only goes to independent restaurants. So if you're publicly traded, you can't use these funds. Uh, if you have more than 20 locations, you can't use the funds. Uh, so it goes to independent restaurants. We are currently working with the Small Business Administration, with the SBA, to actually create the program. So the, the money will get there. Um, it's 28.6 billion, which probably won't be enough, um, but, but we're being told that if that money runs out and there's a need, that the, the, the money will be increased. And so uh, spent a year lobbying um, uh, uh, with a, a bunch of other chefs and restaurateurs across the country. There was probably a, a core group, group of about 150 of us that just were relentless tracking down members of Congress or senators, uh, uh, congressmen and 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 people inside the White House just to make this happen. And uh, so are you satisfied with the result? Safe, this will save restaurants. Yeah. Are you satisfied with the result? Have you done enough? Um, yeah, satisfied with that result. Yeah. Now, now the, the, the hard part is making sure that every restaurant out there knows that this money is available to them. And right. so that's the other thing that the Independent Restaurant Coalition is doing now. Uh, we're, we're, um, we're doing a series of town halls so people know not only that the money is available, but how to go about, uh, you know, filling out your application, what is what you're you're entitled to. So essentially what we ask for is income replacement. So you'll get the difference between 2019 income and 2020 income minus any PPP that you took. 
And this goes down to like the local pizza shop, anywhere in between? Not only does it go down, this goes down to food trucks. This goes down to tasting rooms, anything. And what we really did when we wrote the bill is that for the first two weeks, the applications are only open to smaller restaurants. These are restaurants that do less than than $500,000 a year. So the very smallest restaurants and minority and women owned businesses are the first in line, the first uh, and then there's also of, of the 28.6, 5 million, 5 billion is earmarked only for restaurants that do fewer than, you know, again, the half a million dollars. So we, we're, we're trying to take care of the small restaurants first, but it's, it's available to anyone. Um, so a- absolutely. Um, but again, if you were a small restaurant, you were a pizzeria and maybe you weren't doing uh, business in your restaurant, but you were doing a ton of takeout and your right. revenues were, were the same, then you're not, you're not eligible for it. No, that's good. I, I like that plan. I, I, I hadn't realized that you said offset against 2019. So if you've had a good pickup business, um, right. you're not losing money. I mean, it sounds like a great idea and I'm glad it's worked yeah. uh, to your satisfaction. All right. I know you got to go in a minute or two. So here's my restaurant idea. And if you like it, you and I are partners. Okay? okay. That's I'm floating this out there. There's nothing that I like less than going to a restaurant with a reservation at 8:30, and they say, "Well, your party's still sitting there." You know, the checks on the table, or they're finishing coffee, right. and they linger for like 45 minutes. Here's here's my idea: when you make a reservation, you have a table until a certain time. Yeah. So I have 7:30. It says your your table is available till 9:30, and at 9:30 you've got to get up and get out. Yeah. What do you? Well, you know, there are times. I mean, there are restaurants that do that. You know, they'll they say, listen, Saturday night, it's really busy. You'll have the restaurant to this time. Sometimes people like, you know, okay, I'll show you. I'm not going to leave. And then you're working. You know, we, we, we try to, there's a couple of things that have to happen. Number one, if, and this is where restaurants get tripped up. Let's just say a busy Saturday night and right. you have a party that comes in at 630. So you think you're going to get that, that table back at 830. You right. book it for 830. That's reasonable. That 6.30 shows up a half an hour late for whatever reason. Now you have a choice right now, Mr. Restaurateur. Do you seat that party at seven o'clock? Knowing that there's probably not going to get the table back. Do you seat them saying you have to get up by 8.30, you're half an hour late? Or do you just seat them and try to get the food out as quickly as possible? Do you tell the people as soon as they walk in, I'm sorry, your table's not ready yet. Go to the bar. I'll buy you drinks. You buy, you know, you, you make it, you do whatever you can to make it up. It's, it's a dance. And then on top of that, the better thing to do, and this is a responsibility that, that you need to do if, you're, if, you're a, a make, if you make a reservation and you are not going to show up, call and cancel. Because right. what happens is we know that on a, on a Saturday night, 30% of the reservations won't show. 30%. Really? But we have to overbook. I didn't know that. Right? So we have to overbook to make our night. Right? Occasionally you get caught. So I so, call. You know, I, I never don't show up. But but by the way, in our restaurant, when you have your table till 8 30, I've got big guys like henchmen at the front door and they drag <laughs> you out. I'm telling you, we'll only have to do it once. Once we drag them out and throw them on the street once, nobody will ever do it again. Yeah. Our I think, restaurant is a rousing success. Yeah, you're you're gonna be on your own on that one. <laughs> so, so you're saying so you're saying this partnership's not going anywhere. Yeah, is, it, it, it lasted for about 30 seconds, but yeah, it, was, it was fun. It was fun, though. It was, it was a lot of fun. It sounded like a good idea. All right. I, I know I got to let you go. Uh, again, we, we've, we've accomplished two things. My restaurant idea won't work, uh, and you're not giving up cilantro, which is a massive disappointment. I failed in so many right, things. But when you, when you open up that restaurant, when you do open up that restaurant, yeah. 
You don't have to have cilantro. That's true. I can do it my way. Uh, Top Chef, it's season 18 out in Portland and all done in a bubble. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also have a podcast, right? Citizen Chef? I do, yeah, Citizen Chef. And what do you talk about on your podcast? Uh, it's more about the politics of food and, and, and food policy. Uh, you know, everything that we eat, if you're an eater, everything on your table is touched by policy. And so we talk about that. Uh, we talk about issues around hunger, around access to food. Um, uh, talked a lot about during the pandemic uh, about the, um, uh, the food processing plants and how, you know, people weren't protected and some of these plants actually shut down and really put, put our, our, our food system in, in jeopardy, uh, things like that. But it's, all, it's more policy. Citizen Chef is the podcast. Top Chef, of course, season 18. Uh, Tom, I wish we had more time. I have a feeling if we had more time, I'd be able to convince you that everything I say is just gold. It's just gold. But I, I, I believe it is. I, I just, you know, I co- com- coming out, coming out, of, uh, out, out of COVID and not having restaurants open, the last thing I want to do is throw people out of a restaurant. <laughs> is, is drag people out into the street. After they <laughs> right. I want to drag them in right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tom, listen, thanks. I really enjoyed catching up with you and getting to know you a little better. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for the time today. Yeah, sure. Thanks. There you go, my conversation with Tom Colicchio, who again admitted afterwards, you don't hear this in the conversation, but he mentioned to me after we were done talking that it was the first time he ever discussed with anybody the issue we had with gambling when he was wagering on games. You know, he talked about it briefly, but he was a fan, it was keeping him up at nights. And after we were done, he said, you know, that's the first time I've ever talked about that with anybody. So you may have a little scoop there. Don't want to overemphasize it, but interesting to hear that from Tom Colicchio, why he no longer wagers on games. But I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you enjoy the conversations we have every week. And next week, I'll be joined by Amy Trask, the former CEO of the Oakland Raiders. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's also available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. Download it today and tap podcast. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at Bruce Murray NFL. Going Long is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Andrew Emmer. Sound design by Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And a special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. I'm Bruce Murray. We'll talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.